Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. Hi, movie fans. This is Betty Jo Tucker thanking you for tuning in to Movie Attic Headquarters. You don't have to be a movie addict to visit here, of course. But if you are one, it's definitely the place for you. I'm very excited about today's show, folks, because filmmaker Daniel Stamm will be discussing his experience as a director and screenwriter. And in my opinion, Daniel ranks as one of today's most fascinating new filmmakers. Just listen to what he's already achieved. His first feature film, Unnecessary Death explored suicide in a disturbing but unique way and won the Audience Award and Best Feature Award at the AFI Film Fest in 2008. Then, The Last Exorcism, his second feature, which became a horror hit in 2010, was nominated for the People's Choice Award, two Independent Spirit Awards, and an MTV Movie Award in 2010. Plus, his upcoming projects include 13, the remake of a Thai horror film, The Darkness, written by Megan Holly, who also wrote Sunshine Cleaning, and Reincarnate, the second installment of The Night Chronicles, a trilogy of films produced by M. Night Shyamalan. We're so lucky to have Daniel as our guest today. Welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters, Daniel. Thank you so much, Betty, and thank you for that generous intro. Well, it's just an honor to have you with us. I've been looking forward to uh, talking with you for a long time. Uh, of course, I saw The Last Exorcism uh, first, although that was your second feature. And ever since seeing that movie, I said, I've, I've got to get I've got to get that filmmaker on the show. And so I have lots of questions for you, but I want to mention to our listeners that the chat room is uh, open. So if anyone is interested in um, signing in for the chat, please do that, and we will relay any uh, questions or comments that you have to uh, Daniel during the show. Um, Daniel, you already know how much I admire your first two feature films because you've probably read my reviews, I have, <laughs> but, I'd, yes. but I'd like to begin with A Necessary Death, probably because that's the most recent one I saw. I know it came out in 2008, but it's just recently, I think, been been released on uh, DVD. And I mentioned in the review that I was in kind of a state of shock <laughs> while watching that film. It's so emotionally powerful, and I even felt a little bit guilty about watching it. So I guess what I'm most curious about is why did you decide to make a film about suicide? Well, actually, to me, A Necessary Death is not so much actually about suicide. It's more about the ambition of the documentary filmmaker, you know, who will who will film someone killing himself in front of his camera in order to make his mark and in order for Hollywood to 
to notice him, you know. And the suicide thing, I think if you wanted to make a movie that is solely focused on suicide, you'd need 10 hours to do it justice. You can't really do that in 90 minutes and say, I've, I've said everything about it that I want to say. So we actually were very careful, I think, to stay away from any kind of, to kind of come down on either side of the aisle. We didn't want to make a pro-choice, pro-suicide movie at the same time. We didn't want to condemn it because that would be a pretty arrogant thing because we are not in people's shoes. You know, everyone has a different different way of dealing with things. Everyone is in a different position in their life. So they might choose that path or that path. It wasn't really up to me to comment on that. But what I could comment on was this all-encompassing ambition and drive that film students have when they come out of film school because I went through that myself you know I knew I, I know that when I came out of film school I was prepared to do anything to be able to work in the film industry because it's your one dream and you hold on to that so much that I think you can very quickly get into very murky waters and the suicide thing just gave us that life or death uh, circumstance around that and that worked well dramatically. Well, I think that did come across the um, the ambition of the young student uh, and uh, in making this film. But at the same time, it's and it wasn't preachy, you know. I mm-hmm. I admire that that it wasn't preachy, but it did certainly give people who have seen that uh, a lot <laughs> more understanding of people who are contemplating. Suicide. I mean, that was certainly a byproduct of the, you know, of the film that you uh, that you made, and I, I was glad that the attention was drawn to that topic because I've been um, checking on some of the statistics for the suicide uh, rate, and according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that rate has been going up since 2000 and has reached its highest point in 15 years. And I I didn't know that until I started checking this after seeing your film. And I didn't know that among the military, suicide accounts for more deaths than combat since 2010. So it's it's really a very important um, issue. And uh, you're right. You you couldn't tell it in in just an hour and a half, but you certainly got me uh, thinking about it. And and I think in that in that vein, it's a it's a, a public service uh, movie. I but, I was thinking. Yeah, it's almost an accidental public service uh, that way. You know, we had a lot of people come up to us that were very touched and moved by it and said they have lost someone to suicide. And they have the feeling for the first time they got into that person's head, the person's head that they lost, and understand what might have made him do it, which is something that we never actually aimed for. We certainly did our research, you know, and we, we did deal with the statistics. And they were, just like you were saying, there were some statistics that just blow your mind. For example, that in every day uh, there are enough people killing themselves in the U.S. to fill a jumbo jet. You know, so it's basically one jumbo jet going down every day with people that are committing suicide. So it's a, it's a huge thing, and I think it's a testament to our actor Matt, who is portraying the suicidal guy, that he can he can portray that so convincingly that without the movie spending too much time actually throwing these statistics and these suicide-related facts at the audience, can create a feeling that you have a little bit of an understanding, just a way into the door of that subject matter. You know, and then. I felt that our job was more to ask questions than to actually answer them, you know, to just put it out there. 
you did that very, very well, and uh, I certainly agree with you that Matthew Tilly is uh, is that the uh, that's the that's the young actor who played the uh, the man who was going to commit suicide. Uh, he was just outstanding and was such an appealing fellow that you just you know your heart just went out to him and um, yeah. may, really drew you in uh, drew you into the movie. In fact, your entire cast did uh, an excellent job. How how did you how did you pick your your cast? Well, actually, Gilbert, kind of the protagonist, the filmmaker in the story, he is someone that I worked with in film school. He was the first actor I ever met in America. They have this mm. thing at the, at the American Film Institute where when you first come in in the first week, you have to shoot a scene from a short film and you have to cast your actors just from their headshots, just from their photographs. You're not actually allowed to meet them beforehand. So it's a real gamble. You just say, I like that photograph. Let's work with that actor. And you have no idea who's actually coming in the door. And in my case, it was Gilbert who came in the door, and he was so talented and such a comedic talent, actually, because it was a comedy scene that we were doing, that I worked with him on my first short film at AFI and then on my second short film. And he would get all these comedic offers, but he actually was a really good dramatic actor, and he was always complaining he never gets the dramatic offers. So when, when I kind of came up with nothing, it was the necessary death. I always had Gilbert in mind from the get-go and thought he'd be great for this because he is very eloquent, he's very smart, he's very personable, and he's just someone that you could you can watch because I think this whole film could have turned out very dry if if the people were not a little bit more eloquent and a little bit smarter than your average person that you just pull off the street. You know, not so much that it pulls you out of the movie and you don't believe it, but just enough to kind of grab your attention. And then the other ones we cast, we said Gilbert, we put Gilbert into a room and had him improvise with the people that were coming in. And the only thing that I asked everyone to do to prepare was to prepare a reason why they wanted to kill themselves. You know, so every one of the actors came mm. in and said to Gilbert, I want to kill myself because of so-and-so. And the funny thing actually was that Matt hadn't gotten the information that there were not going to be sides. You know, there wasn't going to be a scene that he has to learn by heart and then act. And he was expecting that to happen. And he came to the audition looking for his scene. And I said, well, there is no scene. Just go in and do your thing. And he went in and Gilbert asked him, so why do you want to kill yourself? And Matt was completely caught off guard and made up this wonderful, very dark, but very twisted, very interesting story. And he didn't even know what genre we were working in. He didn't know if it was a comedy or a thriller or a horror movie. So he just kind of, you know, tried to come up with something. And it was so real and so so touching somehow that we had to work with him. Well, I, the, I mean, you did a great job in, in selecting the <laughs> the cast and, and also the scene. Uh, well, the, there were several scenes of the, of the candidates that the, right. the director was uh, interviewing who was going to be the main subject of the film. All these people who came in to tell, why they had decided to commit suicide, and um, that certainly was uh, an eye-opener to me about all the various reasons uh, that people were uh, contemplating this, and it, it was just, as you say, very, very touching. You, you know, it just it just got to you. This is a this was really an upsetting film uh, to sit through, Daniel, and um, I. While I was watching it, I, I had no idea, you know, how it was 
how it was going to come out. And I had already seen The Last Exorcism, so I was kind of tuned in to the way you used, you know, filming a documentary about some something. You know, I was all, I was tuned in to that. But I was just um, shaken, you know, all the time that I was watching the movie, and, and yet I could not even blink. I was so into it and so worried about what was going to happen and so interested in 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 what you had up there on the screen so it it's really a very very special movie and um, but I do it's want so people to know that it is that it is real. a shocking movie to see right right well that's so great that you're saying that and that you already knew that it was not a real documentary because we've had experiences um where the audience didn't know it I took a rough cut of the movie to a film festival in Kosovo and I was on oh. the jury there, and it was a great experience. And they had set this one night aside where every jury member was to show his last feature project. And I didn't have a last feature project because this was my first feature project. So I took the rough cut and thought, this is great. I have a test audience. We'll just show it and talk about it afterwards, and I'll learn a lot about my movie. And the other two people in the jury screened their movies first, and they got standing ovations. It was this huge success. You know, the audience was the best audience you could ever hope for. And then we were screening my rough cut that I hadn't actually seen because our editor had put it together the night before I went to Kosovo. So there were a lot of changes that I hadn't seen in effect. And I'm watching it, I'm sitting there, and I'm all pleased with myself. And I'm thinking, this actually works great. you know. And then the movie is over, the credits are coming. And I'm waiting for my standing ovation. And there is nothing. There is complete <gasps> silence. And I don't get it, you know, and I'm walking down the stairs towards the Q&A that we were going to do, and there's weird movement in the room, you kind of, without ever thinking about it, I think you have something in your head how movement of the crowd works after the movie's over, there's kind of a steady movement to the exit, and it was the complete opposite, there was complete chaos, people were running from A to B and forwards and backwards, and they were, it was too fast, and some people were too slow, and it was just a weird atmosphere, and Suddenly I hear the sound, and I'm, I'm looking down, and there's this girl lying in the aisle, and she's twitching, and I, I, I see her neighbor, the guy that was sitting next to her, and he has his face in his hands, and he's rocking back and forth, and there are tears flowing down his forearms, and I'm turning around, and in the audience there are these little islands where someone has broken down, and friends are now gathering around him and pulling him to his feet. And I realized in that moment, this audience didn't understand that this wasn't a real documentary. They are thinking they have fallen in love with Matt, the suicidal guy, over the last 90 minutes, and now we've killed him on camera. Uh. And just the second that I realized that this American girl comes, so now it's funny, back then it wasn't funny, this American no. girl comes jumping out of nowhere and grabs me by the collar and shakes me and screams at me, you're a murderer, you could have saved him. You shouldn't be allowed to make movies. What have you done? What have you done? And her oh. her friends kind of drag her off before I can even say it wasn't real, you know. And then I'm running around from island to island, and it's as if I'm doing first aid, and I'm telling everyone it wasn't real. They were actors. You know, Matt isn't dead. Matt is an actor. And it was so hard to get through to them because they had been so, so convinced that this was real that you couldn't just with one sentence, take that away. They didn't understand it, you know. There was one girl when I said, Matt, the suicidal guy, is an actor, and she was crying, and she said, does Gilbert know that? You know, does the filmmaker oh. know that? 
And I was like, no, Gilbert was an actor too. Everyone involved was an actor. And people were angry, you know. I had, They wanted to know why I had put them through this experience and what they were supposed to have learned and taken away from it. And I had never thought that far. I had always thought I had worked so hard and the team had worked so hard on creating this authenticity and to have that much of an emotional impact on the audience that we never thought about the, the, the question why or the answer. So I had I had hurt all these people emotionally. It was as if I had dropped this bomb on this, this audience and now they wanted to know why I had done that and I didn't have an answer for them. And it felt really bad. And I called my editor in Los Angeles that same night and said, we have to recut this movie. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And she, she didn't understand it because she said, we have worked, and it took three years to make, three and a half years to make the movie. She said, we've worked for three and a half years so hard to get that authenticity, to have that emotional impact. Now you want to recut it to lessen that impact? Isn't that what we've been working on all along? But it just wasn't. You had to be there to experience that reaction, you know, that it really wasn't good and it wasn't enough to have had that effect. You know, there is a certain responsibility in filmmaking, which I hadn't realized. I had always heard about it and I always thought that was kind of pseudo, you know, psychological blah, blah, that I didn't really buy into because I was so busy learning the craft and seeing how it's done at all. But that was the first time that I saw it in effect. And then I met a girl the next day, the next morning, who looked like she had drowned her whole face had kind of inflated because she had cried all night and she said she had called her family in the U.S. at 4 o'clock in the morning because she was afraid that she would harm herself. She needed someone to talk to. It was that dark an experience. And I think a lot of that had to do with our ending. We originally had a different ending. I don't want to give the ending of the movie away now. But it was... Well, I think... That's good that you shared this uh, with us because um, we do want our listeners to know that this is uh, this is a film and the, these are actors and um, I don't want to give away the ending either. But that it's even when you know that it has tremendous impact on anyone on anyone uh, viewing it. Well, did so so you did make the. You did make the, uh, you did cut and do some editing after that after that showing. And we did change the ending, our original ending actually, and it, it was cool. We ended on dedicating the film to Matt, to the suicidal guy, and showing baby pictures of Matt over the credits. And we just went the whole way. You know, our our illusion didn't stop when the movie was over. We carried it on into the credits, and that's something that people just weren't forgiving. They had the feeling you had betrayed their trust, and you had taken it too far. So we took all that out, and we actually changed the ending so that there's a little bit more of justice. I I have the feeling people didn't deal well with the fact that we have this lovely, lovely man who is committing suicide, and he's being, that's what the movie is about, how the filmmaker manipulates him when he actually falls in love and he decides not to kill himself anymore. And the filmmaker who has half of this project and has already invested so much money and has his whole future depending on this film. He's not going to let it go, so that means his subject has to die. So he's manipulating that into doing it. Yeah. And I think the audience felt that there needed to be some justice. That he had to pay, the filmmaker had to pay a price somehow. And that's the alternative ending that we had already shot, and that was our original ending that we had spent changed for the cost of our screening. So we now changed it back. And what you're seeing in the movie right now, if you watch it on DVD or from iTunes or something, you see the original ending 
where he is actually paying a price. Well, I, I now I know our listeners who haven't seen this are definitely going to want to <laughs> yeah. see it after listening to you explain what you've what you've gone through. And um, where can they can they um, get a copy of a necessary death? Is it available on on Amazon? On the DVD on Amazon, or is there a special yes. site they need to go to? No, it's available anywhere. It's not yet available on Netflix because there are different windows, time windows mm-hmm. or something. It's getting all complicated. But it's, uh, you can download it on iTunes. You can buy the DVD from Amazon. You can get it on Time Warner Cable on Demand through PlayStation, through Xbox, through all your usual outlets, basically. But I have to say that the DVD has 36 minutes of <laughs> deleted scenes and the alternative ending and two commentary tracks. So you get a lot of stuff with the DVD that you don't really get if you are downloading from iTunes. I see. Well, I, I recommend the, the DVD because I think that's what you sent me, and um, it really was uh, <laughs> it really was encouraging to me to see the the bonus features and, and the two possible endings and um so I do recommend um that the listeners get the uh, get the DVD and um but that with the caveat that there's even even though they know that these are actors they're still going to have uh, they're still going to find it a, a disturbing movie but I believe it's one that uh, that is really going to be a classic. So I hope that, um, listeners, that you will uh, get a copy of this DVD of A Necessary Death, which, by the way, as I mentioned in the introduction, it won the Audience Award and Best Feature Award at the AFI Film Fest back in 2008. And um, now I'd kind of like to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about... The Last Exorcism, because that was, uh, even though that was your second film, that's the first one that I saw. And I I wish you could tell us how your uh, writing and directing A Necessary Death led to you being signed on as the director of The Last Exorcism. Well, it actually led directly to it. We had finally finished the movie. We had just won AFI Fest. And Jacob Foreman, who is a screenwriter that I studied with at the American Film Institute, who wrote All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, which is a, is a great feature, if, you, if anyone can get hold of it out there. And he was writing a script for this production company, Strike Entertainment, who are the producers of Dawn of the Dead and Children of Men and just a lot of great, great successful movies. And he overheard, if I understand the story right, he overheard someone saying in the hallway, we just had our directors uh, quit this project because the original directors had signed on to two movies and they were hoping to be able to do them both one after the other. And then they both went at the same time. They were greenlit at the same time. And they had to make a decision and they decided to make the other movie, which would be the virginity that Will Ferrell was producing. And so they basically had to decide between the horror or the comedy. They wanted to do the comedy. So they left this project. So suddenly there was a directing spot open. And he overheard one of the producers saying, how do we find someone who can direct a mockumentary, a documentary-style narrative feature film? And Jacob, I'd given Jacob a copy of A Necessary Death a week earlier, and he had it with him. And he said, well, watch this movie. And they did, and they called me the next day and said, we want exactly that style, that same authenticity, just in a horror genre. Can you make a horror movie? And I've learned one thing in Hollywood so far, 
which is that whenever someone asks you if you're capable of doing something, you first say yes in a very confident tone, and then you think about what you've gotten yourself into afterwards. You know, on the drive home, I was like, "Oh my God, whatever." Because I'm not, a, I'm not necessarily a horror. I'm not very versed in the horror genre. You know, I haven't haven't seen that many horror movies. I wasn't really. It wasn't my speciality, but I had the feeling that if you make the characters authentic and make the audience care about the characters, then you can go from there into dark territory, just as we had with Necessary Death, and, and people will care, and suddenly it'll, it'll matter. I always have the feeling if you don't set them up in the first act and in the second act so that the audience will fall in love with the characters, then I don't care if they get their head chopped off in the third act. You know, I first need to care, and I said that to the, the producers, and they said, take as much time as you want setting up the characters. Uh, we'll, we'll trust that it gets you know, dark and horrifying early enough. And that's what we did. I mean, it takes almost an hour in the last exorcism before the real horror elements are kicking in. And we're using some humor, which I think is a really strong weapon to to link the audience to the protagonist, you know, to really make them identify and fall in love with them. It's a couple of light moments, that it's not all doom and gloom immediately, but we enjoy our time with the protagonist before we actually get into the horrific stuff. And of course, a lot of the, the horror audience is not used to that, and they were a little bit thrown off. I have the feeling that the biggest fans of The Last Exorcism are people like me that usually don't run to see every horror movie. They're not necessarily the big horror movie audience, they suddenly appreciate it and go, I, I never thought I would like this after the marketing campaign, which was very geared towards emphasizing the horror, um, but I actually really enjoyed it. And then I'm meeting real horror fans that want, you know, the blood and the, the, the head chopped off and all that stuff, and they tend to be a little bit disappointed with them, well, which I can live with. Well, they, well, I certainly wasn't disappointed. I, in fact, I, I hadn't intended uh, to enjoy the last exorcism because of the of the topic, and but I, I mean, I just absolutely was bowled over by that movie, and I still can't help raving about its co-stars. Uh, in fact, as we were talking about before the the show today, both Patrick Fabian and Ashley Bell were guests here after that film was released and they right. were great and they had uh, such a great time working working with you now for our listeners who um, haven't seen the last exorcism i i have to have to tell you that you're in for quite a treat and a lot of surprises and when uh daniel talks about humor in a horror movie uh, the character of uh, that patrick fabian plays is a, uh, a, a minister who is trying to debunk uh, ex- uh, the uh, exorcism ritual, and uh, he's filming a. He's invited a film crew along to uh, film this exorcism that he's going to do. And and watching, him, he's he's sort of a. The character that Patrick Fabian plays is sort of a, a combination of a con man and a do-gooder, I think. And he's he's just perfect in that role, Daniel. And you have to to laugh at some of the things he's doing and the way he sets up the fake exorcism, which turns out to be well. I don't want to I don't want to give things away, but how was it working with those two? And and how did you get Patrick Fabian and Ashley Bell? Ashley Bell, by the way, listeners, is the is the uh, young woman who is going to be going through the exorcism, and my 
goodness, all the all the thing that what acting that is. I think she she got into all these body positions. I think there were no, there was no CGI used, and that really that really impressed me. And speaking of listeners, I want to mention that. Um, Nancy Lombardo from Comedy Concepts is in the chat room, and it's always so good to see her. And uh, Cal Pote has been there, and then a number of guests have been um, have not identified themselves, but we're really glad that you're here and that you're getting a chance to hear Daniel Stam tell about uh, Necessary Death and the, the movie we're talking about right now, The Last Exorcism. But uh, I had just asked... Um, Asked you, Daniel, what it was like working with uh, Patrick and Ashley. Well, they're just incredible people. The thing about our project was that it was a different style because we had a script, but I had never shown the actors the scripts because I didn't want them to just recall lines, but I needed that extra bit of authenticity so that they... I think you use a different part of your brain when you're making up words uh, rather than when you're recalling them, you know, because you've written them before, read them before. So they never actually saw the script. So even in auditions, I was looking for people that could improvise. I didn't care if they were great at making lines come alive off the page. I needed them to basically be writers, to, to function as writers with me on set and really take charge of their character and their arc and give that character a, a voice and say, this is what I would do in this situation. So I was looking for actors that could do that. And Ashley, actually, I'm almost embarrassed to say, was the second person that walked through the door. And she did this whole scene in this thick southern accent. And I, maybe that's me being German and being naive, I completely believed it. It wasn't, I didn't have any doubt that she was from Alabama. And when, oh. the, scene, when the scene then was done, and she suddenly, you know, turned, because she's from Encino, she's from Los Angeles. You know, and she suddenly talked in her normal voice. I was like, oh, my God, you know, it's like two different people. And that's exactly what I was looking for, two different people, because we need the the shy, sensitive um, 16-year-old that has grown up so secluded and away from the world. And then we need this, this child from hell that will suddenly do incredible stuff. So I needed kind of that, that, that those two sides anyway, and that worked really well. And we did an exorcism with her. I had actually Gilbert from A Necessary Death, the filmmaker, the actor that plays the filmmaker in A Necessary Death. He came into the audition because I knew that he has the style down to a T and improvised an exorcism with her. And she went up the walls, and it was so scary to be in that room. It got genuinely uncomfortable, and you could tell on the faces of the casting agent on Gilbert's face that they just wanted it to stop. You know, it actually was just going on and on and on, and it got really dangerous. And she went for it. You know, there's no stopping her once she goes for it. And the one thing she didn't show me, which is so bizarre to me, is that she's actually double-jointed, that she can actually bend her limbs into directions that no human being should be able to bend their limbs into. And she didn't do, do that during the audition. And then when we were on set months and months later, we were, the night before we shot the exorcism scene, we were in the hotel, in the hotel lobby, and I said, this is the scene we're going to do tomorrow. Do you have any ideas? Is there anything you want to try? Because I know that Ashley did all the research, read all the books, listened to tapes of exorcism victims or possessed people or are they schizophrenic, all that stuff. So she had so much that she could bring to the table. And she said, yeah, I've been working on this backbend. Why don't I do this? And she got up in the hotel lobby and she did the backbend that you see on the last exorcism poster 
and her the back of her head almost touched the ground, and people were freaking out in the hotel lobby, and I couldn't believe it. Of you know this gift that I had suddenly been given, and I was running up to my room and rewriting the scene, and then the next day we shot the scene that's in the movie right now, which would have been a completely different scene if Ashley hadn't been able to do all that double jointed stuff. So that would actually creep me out. <laughs> yeah. That, and, it's a great thing is that she creeped Patrick Fabian out, you know. So all the shots that you see of Patrick in that scene of the minister, the exorcist reacting to Ashley, that's actual real stuff because I didn't show Patrick any any of that beforehand. I didn't tell him that she'd be able to do this. We just put her in this in this barn. We shot all her scenes first onto her. The Patrick wasn't in the room. And then we brought him in and she did the stuff right there. And he was freaked out, and you can really see that on his face. I think there are things that are so subtle that you can't really act them, but they just had to happen. It's the same reason that I do 20 or 30 takes for, because there is a tiredness and a tension setting in around take 15 that you can't act. There are little twitches. There is they are sweating. They, they you know, they are they are mm-hmm. getting nervous. They are getting confused, and you see that on their faces. And it's something that you can't really fake. So that stuff is always great to have. And oh, Ashley completely came through. And Patrick was actually the complete opposite of Ashley in that we must have seen 500 people for that role of Cotton. And we just couldn't find anyone. And then, luckily, at some point, Patrick walked in and I knew that I had my guy. And I had I had this trick at the time that I was sitting in the waiting room where the actors were waiting before going in for the audition. Mm-hmm. And I was pretending to be an actor myself waiting for the audition. And that's the only way that you can talk to an actor without him knowing that you're the director for five minutes and get a bit of a feeling for who they are as real people. I did an internship with Nellie Finn, who was a great casting director. She cast LA Confidential and the Matrix movies and Titanic and yeah. Terminator and all that. And she always said, you have to cast people not for their acting abilities, but for who they really are as people, because that is the core that they will always go back to. You know, when they're out of ideas or they're tired or they're nervous or whatever it is, they will always go back to the essence of who they really are. So do whatever you can to find out who they really are before you commit working with them. And I always have the feeling that this trick of just getting them in this situation where they're nervous because they're about to go in for the audition, and the last thing they want is some other guy tapping them on the shoulder and going like, hey, how are you doing today? Blah, blah, blah. And the way they react to that tells you a lot about who they are as people. And Patrick was just the most pleasant, supportive guy. He thought that I was actually nervous going in, so he was trying to support me. And all. It was just nice. <laughs> so when we were walking in, I already felt this is a good guy. I can spend 24 days with him on set, 10 hours a day. I hope he's good in the role. And then what I asked them to do is to prepare a sermon and to just improvise a sermon and I am the audience and he did this perfect immaculate sermon for eight minutes and was talking and talking and talking and I, I, after he was done I said this was brilliant can we just cut this down to four minutes I thought, of course, that he would take some of the content out but instead of taking out content he would just speed up and talk twice as fast he can and talk pretty fast too, and you still understand. You still understand him, so. right? But you can't. I at least couldn't process it. I was sitting there, and I thought that guy is talking so fast that I can't actually process what he's saying. But the energy that's coming across is one that makes me want to stand up and say Hallelujah, whatever you are saying. I'm on board. Let's do it. Yeah, which is I think exactly the energy we needed from someone who can 
talk in front of a congregation and rile them up. And it's actually where this moment, there's this moment in the film that he says, I bet that I can make, that I can preach a banana bread recipe to the yes. to the congregation, you know, and they will shout hallelujah. And that's right, it, I would. I would shout exactly. hallelujah with his banana. At, at that, that's, <laughs> he was at so that great point in, in that. Casting, that point in casting is where that scene, where I came up with that scene. And I thought, we need mm-hmm. to have a scene in the film, you know, where he talks so fast that no one can follow him, but people are on his side anyway. So that oh, yes, absolutely. Well, I have to I have to encourage uh, listeners to see the last exorcism if they haven't seen it, and and I know that's available on DVD now, and uh, that's probably also on uh, Netflix. Do you know whether it's available yeah, it's on, on Netflix? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's okay. even streaming streaming on Netflix. And could could stream it there too. So, Mm -hmm. so if you haven't seen that, do yourself a favor and and uh, check out the last uh, exorcism. Well, I want to give you a chance, Daniel, to talk also about some of the upcoming film projects you're you're working on now. And and of course, the time has just gone by so so quickly. You just you're just so great to talk with. But but let's hear about what you're what's up for you, um, you know, in the future. Well, I'm shooting a project in September, um, a remake of a Thai movie called 13 Game of Death, which sounds pretty mm-hmm. horrific, but it's a really smart story, and it's, uh, the remake is written by the same writer that helped me rewrite Last Exorcism, and that I've since written the, the script for the Shyamalan project with, and he's just a genius. His name is David Burke, and he comes up with the great stuff, and that, this kind of this story was like the perfect fit and we just came up with outrageous stuff and the producers are great and want to make a, a smart genre movie, you know, something that is kind of inspiring and new. And So I'm really excited about that. It's the same cinematographer that shot Last Exorcism. It's going to be the same editor that edited Last Exorcism. So I'm kind of trying to keep that group together because once you have a great experience, you're kind of family, you know, and I think sure. it's going to be such a, such a shortcut because suddenly you know each other so well because you've gone through this war together, basically. So I'm trying to keep them together. And the script I'm really excited about. We're shooting in Los Angeles in September for 24 days. So it's roughly the same amount of time that we had for Last Exorcism. But it's going to be in a more conventional narrative style. It's not going to be a fake documentary. Mm. So, and, that's uh, that. so that's the first one that's coming out. That's the first one. Then we are, and actually just off the phone with Knight, we are we're still developing Reincarnate, which is based on an M. Night Shyamalan idea, and then he's going to produce it, and I'm going to direct it, and we're writing it together with David Burke and uh, Chris Sparling, who wrote Buried. He's on board. So it's this group of people which are really kind of interesting characters with very interesting takes on stuff, so to sit at a table at night, actually <laughs> flew us out to Philadelphia where he lives on this beautiful estate. And we spent three months there every day, you know, every every morning at 11 o'clock we would gather around this table and sit there for hours and discuss the script. And it was just such a treat to peek into the mind of M. Night Shyamalan, you know, and see what makes him the celebrity that he is and the genius filmmaker that he is. And also seeing that he's also only human, you know, and, and all that stuff. It was just great. I great know time. he is because I had a, I had the opportunity to interview him in person in, in San Diego when he was there with, I think, was his very first movie, Wide Awake. And, oh, wow. Uh, Yes, and he just—he looked to me just, you know, like a like a movie star rather than rather than a filmmaker, and he just 
was was so easy to talk with and so uh, he is he's very very human and that I'm I'm very eager to see um you and um and uh Shyamalan doing a, a something together so I'll I'll be looking forward great yeah and then there is the third project is called the darkness um which is written by another great writer Megan Holly who wrote sunshine cleaning and it was actually it's a it's a ghost movie in England very sophisticated based on on a novella uh movie with a great end twists and just everything that you expect every time you think oh i know what this next thing is going to be it's turning around and it's something completely different and it's just very very smart and it looked for a long time like they wanted to go at the exact same time as 13 was going to go and luckily that has sorted itself out because i for a while thought i'd have to give up one of the films which really would have made my heart bleed because they're it's not easy to find great scripts in hollywood or at least not on my level i don't get offered great scripts every day so if i'm actually finding one that's like every couple of months i'm finding one story that i'm really passionate about and really obsessed with and well, here and are three here are three that exactly. you're involved in and exactly. so now what i what i want to know because we um our time is going by so so quickly is um will you will you come back and visit with us when um when your next film is ready for release, because we have a lot more things we'd like to talk with you about. I want our listeners to know something about your teenage years, because I think you could make a movie out of all the things that you did uh, as a teenager over in Germany. So, But we don't have time for that today. So will you come back again um, when your next pleasure. film is ready? Absolutely. absolutely. I, I can't talk about my movies enough. I'll talk for 24 hours about my movies. Absolutely. Well, I can see I can see that you do and that's probably why I love them too because the passion that you have for them does does show uh, show through. Good. And I Good. want to thank you for being such a terrific uh guest today, uh Daniel, but we are going to have to uh wrap things up. So this is Betty Jo Tucker giving a big shout out to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for choosing this episode as one of today's staff picks. We really appreciate it. Special thanks again to Daniel and to our chatters and other listeners. I hope everyone enjoyed the show. I know I sure did. Please come back next time when we'll be celebrating the 60th anniversary of Singing in the Rain, my all-time favorite musical. Robert Osborne, host of Turner Classic Movies, has agreed to kick off the show. Plus, we'll play a clip of Debbie Reynolds talking about the film. And we may hear... From the great Rita Moreno, she's been also invited to call in. Also joining in the fun will be film historian James Cole Harrison and Diana Sanger, founder of Classic Movie Guide. That's all for now, folks. So I'm wishing everyone a fun and safe July 4th. And now, to get us in the mood for next week's show, here's Gene Kelly taking us out with the iconic title song, from singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. 
I'm laughing at clouds dark up above. The sun's in my heart and I'm ready for love. Let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place. Come on with the rain, I've a smile on my face. With a happy refrain Just singing, singing in the rain Dancing in the rain I'm happy again